Assalamualaikum everyone. Um, so I'm really, really excited to be here today with Marvi Mazhar. So before we move on to an introduction, I'd like to provide an introduction to our podcast. So essentially what we aim to do here is highlight voices of women in different fields. Um, and today we're going to be doing exactly that. And if you're interested in the field of architecture or research in any way, definitely stay tuned to hear some really, really interesting conversations. But just to provide an introduction to our guest today. Um, so Marvi Mazhar is an architect and researcher. Her practice essentially combines visual culture, spatial advocacy, and interventions. Um, but just to sort of give a brief um, description of what exactly this means, this is essentially creating a dialogue between the changing footprint of Karachi's inner city through her personal archives and visual ethnography of Purana Shahar, which is old town, versus Naya Shahar, which is the new and slash reclaimed town over here, right? So it's, it's essentially an attempt to understand the legalities of public heritage properties, amenity plots, urban parks of Karachi, um, and extends towards understanding the gated community from a socio-analytical perspective. Um, so just a few projects that she has led in the past as well as currently. She has served as director at Peace Niche D2F and is the co-founder of Architectural Design Research Lab. Um, and also she founded the Pakistan Chalk Community Center and was also the project manager for the National History Museum, which was conceptualized by the Citizens Archive of Pakistan. Is there anything you would like to add or share about yourself that I was not able to do in the past few minutes? You super covered everything. I don't <laughs> okay. think I need anything to add on. Perfect. So we'll go into the first question. So just super basic. What exactly was it that led you towards architecture slash heritage conservation? Or was there a particular point at which you were sure that you wanted to get into it? Thanks, Tia, for this incredible introduction and the question. I started off, uh, basically, my inclination towards heritage started in my third year of college when I was doing my minor thesis. Uh, <clears throat> that's like, just before you do your final thesis, you're supposed to do a mini thesis. And in that, um, I had started kind of like looking at the city from existing built environment rather than looking at the modern construction. And that happened when I start when I was given a project to design and think about how I would like to experiment with my thesis. So I took up a site, an existing site, which had four railway quarters. And this was a colonial structure, barrack style, made in stone. And I took those buildings and I thought, what would I do with these four quarters, which were diagonally to each other on a 45 degree angle, facing the race course where Pompeii and the railway quarter is. So um, I started visiting the site. I started meeting people over there. I started taking interviews. I met this lady, resident lady who owned the building, one of them. And she was a German lady, lived all her life there. Um, came here during pre-partition. Her husband was here. They were all were working for railway quarters. And somehow I started, I guess my inclination towards uh, heritage was, was so, uh, started developing in terms of like how incredible were these existing built environment, which not only the building was inspiring, but the stories coming within it. So I took that project and then I designed a modern gallery around it. So I did not touch those buildings. I created my new building, kind of enveloping it in a very subtle way, but highlighting those two four, those four quarters. So that was my first project. Um, and then when I was leading towards my final project, is when I wanted to again go back to that project and see that how I can develop it further. So um, someone told me that, oh, you should go meet Yasmin Lari. And, uh, and, and you know, this is her office and you should go there. So I went there like, you know, and then inspired like a student with a lot of excitement and 
no idea what will I uh, face when I go in and I step into Heritage Foundation. And here Mrs. Lari was sitting there with her aura and, uh, and, and she said that, have you read my book, Karachi British Raj? And I said, no. So she said, here is the book, read that book. And once you're done reading, then come back to my office because till then I'm not gonna talk to you. And that book became my Bible in my fifth year. And then after that, I promised myself that once I'm done, I'm gonna go at least go intern with her if nothing else. Well, anyway, the internship led to be a, a five-year job with her. And she changed my whole paradigm with, with, with a built, built environment conversation. I, I, during that time, I just did heritage work. That's lovely. Um, so you mentioned that this was basically your first project and sort of what got you into this field. Um, do you, what, of what importance do you think it is to you to this day? Like, is, are there points at which, you know, it really reminds you of why you got into this work or essentially what value is it to you today? Well, now when I look at my practice after like 10, 15 years, um, I started in 2009, right? And after that, working with Yasmin Lari at Heritage Foundation for five years, um, I went to Italy. I did my further heritage management courses and then I came back. I worked again with Mrs. Lari and at that time I was working on, on Makli. And, um, but what was the most important thing that came out of all of this learning curve was how um, my practice kind of reflected a lot of, lot of ethic, ethical decisions that how do we accommodate, how do we accommodate the existing pra parameters into our new built environment? And, um, and I didn't know that this conversation will lead into my next phase, which is, uh, which is the, the, the natural side of the terrain. And that's the ecology, that's the, that's, the that's the environment, which is leading up to a climate crisis. So everything is like a built upon. I, I, it has a, it, it's almost like a, like a weaved textile of how I started off and how, and how my work is progressing now. And um, the more I think about it, it is coming from heritage. And, and I am looking at um, soft grounds and, and hard grounds. I am looking at landscapes. I am looking at um, vertical structures. And all of them have a reflection of, of past. And I can't let go of that. So anything that I even build new comes from the inspiration of archives. So that is my, my storyboard. That sounds great. Um, so now relating that to like your projects, so the ethnographic research you carried out, could you sort of elaborate on that in terms of like the socio-analytical perspective that it took? What exactly does that, that mean precisely for those who wanna know more about it? So I'm a visual writer. I need a lot of like photographs in order to get inspired to write them. So um, my work style now has become a lot dependent on footnotes rather than main notes or main, main body of uh, literature. So I uh, do the counter alter uh, way of uh, writing. I write my footnotes first, my field observation log notes, and then I develop it into a mainstream literature essay or, or article or anything that I want to build upon. It starts off from observations and observations are then aided by visuals. So that really helps me with, uh, with, with my, so that, that's how I'm saying like, it's a visual ethnographic way of writing. And, uh, and then I add more textures like sounds. I add more um, uh, conversations and, and interviews that I take place and I transcribe them. 
So, so I do a lot of layering rather than, for me, citation comes when I have to defend a topic or defend some kind of argument. And if I have to say something like, you know, um, public spaces should not have fence. So I will then quote an urban planner who's, uh, has, who has practiced it. But then my important footnote in that will not be the citation that I take, that I, that I bring in into my work of an academic. For me, the people who are using those spaces without fencing becomes the main literature. So they become my real characters and then the others became, become the sound around it. That sounds great. Um, but so just sort of in terms of like this project and other projects that you've done in the past, did you ever feel that there was any sort of deterrence caused by your gender specifically in your career? And if so, like how did you sort of approach and tackle these difficulties? This question has, has been asked with me for like many times. And especially when I was doing the railway project, that was a time when it was a quite a gendered space. It was mostly men over there. And I used to be there every day in the morning. Uh, somehow I never felt back then. I mean, uh, in, my, in my earlier, I would say like right after college or right after finishing Heritage Foundation, uh, working over there. And I started my uh, individual practice, um, independent practice rather. Um, and I never used to kind of feel outed or, or feel like, you know, some, like I'm, I've been discriminated. It's very recently that um, some of the decisions that are top down is when I feel it now, um, where they'll put me in a, in a, see, we all can't be boxed into a category that, oh, she's an architect, oh, she's just a designer, an artist, or we all carry a lot of skins within us. You know, there's a lot of layering within us. And because our brain thinks in so many directions that if I have to be an activist, that comes out as, as a normal practice. And if I have to become just a, like a designer and just design uh, for a uh, private independent client, then I'll do that as well. But then if I have to think about conservation, then I'll think about the context around it. Then I won't think individually. So there are these many hats that one wears. Um, so initially when I started off, I never used to come across, but I used to find a lot of allyship on field. I used to feel that, you know, it was a lot of, they used to accommodate, they used to feel in awe that how she's standing over there, she's getting the work done, she's always on. So I am a field person, I'm not a desk person. And, um, and, and that was like one of the main things that took, was, was quite shocking for me to realize was during COVID times when I had to be, you know, sit at home and, and, I, and I didn't know what else to do because I was never a computer person. I always was a person who collected data by, 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 by outside environment and then brought it inside. So, so coming back to your query, uh, it is a very recent um, emotion that I would share that I'm feeling uh, there is a disparity in this profession. Right. Um, so I think like that's really great because it does sound like this field is generally welcoming in terms of providing support to females that are entering. But do you feel that the recent disparity that you've noticed has come in? Is it due to say the involvement of like superior, so-called superior authorities in projects or so-and-so? Or is it just generally a change of culture within the same um, people that you've been sort of engaging with for the past few years? 
So the architecture itself is a very um, interesting community. I mean, you have all sorts of uh, uh, members who will support you, who will guide you. You have to find, I mean, one thing that I would advise to anybody is to find a mentor. And that mentor is, is somebody who's not like um, a person who gives, who gives uh, power speeches or power, power uh, outlines, is a person who works with you, who thinks with you, who, 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 who has no power there. And it's a, it's a shared learning. So once you find that, I mean, then it kind of like really converts the whole uh, practice, right? Then the Ustad Shagird, which used to be like a power, power relationship, right? Yeah. You look up to and you look down to, that needs to be converted, but you must have an ally with you or an Ustad with you who can work with you throughout. And he and that person is your go-to person whenever there is some void in, in, in practice. So for me, that was, uh, I, I was very lucky that I had many of those, you know, I, I had it in my, if I had to practice something in, in like modern architecture, so I had somebody go to person there. If I had a heritage query, I would go somewhere else. So there were clusters, one develops. And then within my own batch, I found uh, my, my, my peers, my friends who graduated with me, whom we had like amazing, uh, uh, like a, like a lifelong professional conversation where it's always go back to the desk and talk about like how we, where we, you know, took off from and now where we are. So every time it's like a time check, you know, okay, now in this, in this point of our career, we're doing this and somebody else is doing that. So how can we learn from each other? And that was, that is what architectural profession should be practiced as associates rather than independent candidates. Uh, my advice to anybody who is interested in this built environment and design perspective has to think about that there are going to be a lot of hurdles because architecture is one profession where you are not just working uh, from desk to your site. You're working with an environment and that environment curtails governance, uh, bureaucracy, paperwork, asking for permissions, asking uh, analysis of the site, analysis of the context, who are you building for? How will it be affected after 10 years? So a lot of really important questions need to be answered in, in that phase where you are designing something on your table and then looking at it being built in front of you. Definitely, I think, especially when, for example, when you're younger, someone like me that is aiming to become, for example, an architect or so, is looks at it as a, in a much more ideal perspective say like with a lot more in a more dreamy way and passionate which i think is good but definitely i feel like having a mentor not even just in times like that but always throughout your life it's always important to have some sort of role model there that you look up to and that will help you sort of overcome these hurdles because right now we don't realize what how much else there actually is to it we just see you know the very surface level base of it um so just sort of linking to that is was there ever any sort of specific female figure, someone you know personally, or someone that say like a celebrity or so that encouraged your journey throughout your life? Definitely, so many of them. Um, I was very lucky that uh, I would start off with Yasmin Lari. I mean, she was uh, a person who really threw me as soon as I graduated into. Uh, uh, so a project that I did was my toughest project that was in Peshawar and I was living in Peshawar but my project itself was up 
up in the north in different villages. So, and I had just graduated. So you could see the fear of like a fresh graduate and then working for like a, such a big name and then being told that you're going off to Peshawar for six months. And here I had to deal with my family and your person, right? Your boss. So I, I just told us I'm leaving. I have to do this. This is a great opportunity. And it was, I must say that that really changed a lot of my it brought a lot of confidence. I did a lot. And I guess that's why fieldwork is so important for me that I fell in love with, with interacting with the environment, like I mentioned before. And then, um, and then, yeah, I mean, women support, women support each other in, in a very interesting way. Um, no matter, like, there will be points when, you know, we, we lift each other because we know what we've gone through um, in so many years of, like, patriarchal system. And my next person, I would say, who has been quite, uh, who has believed in, in, in the kind of work I've done or, or supported me. Uh, I remember like when I was independent, when I started my practice independently, I wanted to do a documentation of, in, of historical bungalows in Karachi. And I had no money and I had to buy equipment. So I walked in uh, into somebody, you know, so, Somebody told no. Before that, there's an also another very interesting story. Before I come to this one, and I was working at Heritage Foundation back then, and I got an email, and somebody told me that, you know, Shirmin Ubaid would like to meet you. So I said, okay, fine, that's great. Um, sure. And then Shirmin walked in, and I and she was like, I want to meet Yasmin Lari. So take me and let me introduce. And at that time, Citizens Archive was being built. I mean, it was being coming together, and they were looking for uh, uh, a museum space. So. And then I set that meeting up and we met. That was my first time I met, met Shireen, um, where she was just focusing on, uh, on CAP at that time. From there, many years, like fast forward three, four years later, uh, we were not super in touch, but at least, you know, uh, there was a, like a well-wishing kind of a space. But then now this time I needed help. So I wrote to Shireen and I said, Shireen, I'm starting a research. I have no money and I need support. So she said, come to my office. And I landed up there. I gave her a bill and she paid for it. And, and if that wouldn't have happened, I don't think my, my historic bungalow research would have formulated because from there I got the confidence and I started writing to independent people. And most of them were women who gave me money and who trusted me. And I had no say at that time. I was quite young and I was um, independent. Like I had just started my practice. So how, how would anybody trust a person starting new, right? with money especially. But then one after the other, I got small stipend, then I got another stipend. And all the names I mentioned in the PDF right now, it's uploaded on my website. People who helped me build a historic bungalow research. And that was my first publication, uh, self-publication that I put out online. And then a lot of students started emailing me saying that how much it has helped them. So, you know, it kind of became like an ecological chain. Somebody helps you, you help somebody else, and then it kind of becomes into a circle or a cycle, which is helping each other uh, through, through, through research, through photographs, through something or the other. And my, my, uh, now my, my vision is that whatever we build, we build vertically. So if I have built a foundation of some research, somebody else comes and builds upon it, and then somebody else builds upon it, and it becomes into a larger conversation. So that's why whatever I do a little bit of work as well, I put it online for students to download them and they're for free. That's great. Yeah, I also wanted to say something because I think the point that you brought in about it being like a chain, 
I think that's so true because it's like someone helps you and then because you're you're able to receive that advice from someone generally just out of compassion and kindness you have that same drive to sort of help other people and I've seen that with you also definitely in my time with you I saw there was a, a lot of like students that look up to you and stuff so do you think that you now play the same role to someone that say someone like Yasmin Lari did to you? Absolutely. I mean, not only just Mrs. Lari, but all the people who have been in part of my journey of, of negotiating with the city, whoever, I mean, I learned on every step and that was how I grab. And you know, memory is a very strange thing. You forget the bad things and you keep like stuff in your in your journey it out and then you move on and you remember the solid stuff and you're like you know what fine and 30 percent that person did a lot of hurdles for me but 70 percent that person was great yeah and it's all about a matter of a call right or saying and saying or writing an email and, and then getting a response it responds and says come let's work it out so I think that is what, how I would want to lead my studio, my design office, where people are comfortable to writing to me and just saying, it's okay, like, you know, let's, let's do it together. Definitely, that makes sense. And in the practice, I think it's very important to have that collaborative uh, association. So I don't think um, in, in a city so complex like Karachi, one can even think of working alone independently. You've got to work with, with the community. You've got to work with collaborative methods. And that's how you come up with great solutions. Okay, so um, have you basically, in reference to your project of the National History Museum, what are your thoughts on like women's voices in history and how they're often swept under the rug? Was that something that you discovered while you were working for the for NHM? Well, NHM, because it's such a women-led uh, uh, office and plus like thinkers, um, there was no way that there could have been a disparity in there. So they had like a proper one room which was dedicated to the women, um, especially when it was a celebration year of some women's rights or something. So they did curate. So there was a lot of like, you know, wherever one could do. That's what happens, right? When you have like a great body of thinkers and a, and, a, and a round table, then you let everyone's voice come together. And that's the exciting part of like being part of great uh, uh, think tanks. And uh, and then curators, you know, they, they are the ones who kind of shape up a project and bring in um, equal amount of uh, this, you know, distribution of um, photographs, transcriptions, notes, audio recordings, all of that. So I, I would say that NHM is quite fairly well uh, gendered. Yeah, I think like at the end of the day, that's what happens. Essentially women like end up helping women in different ways. Say even like women from in history from ages ago, I'm sure that the team for NHM definitely did enable those voices to be highlighted a lot further for sure. Um, I mean, it would be really exciting to have like a women museum for yeah. to see. Based on like your Pakistan Job Community Center. So after all of the work you've done in that, what is your insight on the value of spaces for expression for all communities, but also specifically say like in regards to women and minorities? 
Yeah, Pakistan Chalk Community Center is an ongoing dialogue. Um, it had its ups and downs. I mean, when we started off, we started off like absolute outsiders. And with time, I mean, it's okay to now talk about it because it's important to have your lab cases, like, you know, you do lab tests and you find out that what's right, what's wrong, and you keep on building upon it. So now I'm, I'm not shy to, to talk about the, the failures and, and, the, and the kind of interventions we took initially, which were um, maybe probably were talking on behalf of, but now we are not doing like we, as we, as time grew and we worked together closely and when we ran the community center in a physical space, there were a lot of things that one learned and then kind of like curtailed it, changed it, brought in more voices, brought in more, accommodated more people and kind of like left it to them, how they would like to run it, how they would like to work on it. So now Heritage Walk Karachi is a very interesting project when it comes to think of like, it's a, it's a, it's born under Pakistan Chalk Community Center. And it was developed by the residents over there who kind of told us, go to that building, find that information, look at that uh, uh, facade, go inside there, meet this guy. So we have a lot of like evidences that way where we have kind of now comfortable enough to talk about that, how we can work with the old town rather than working in our offices and creating a, a, a plan for Old Town. We don't want to do that anymore. We don't want to plan for Old Town. We would like to design with the, with the Old Town, you know, who the people are, what their narratives are, how can we stitch them together and build something on it. And, and jahan tak minority ki baat hai, I mean, it, it is very important to talk about like how these sacred spaces have now become there's a, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uh, secretization. There's a lot of boundaries, fencing, um, policing, and and surveillance. So so to accommodate minority was always in in silos. It was never in a, in a larger group. Hmm. When we had the Sikh photography photog photographer, like the the, the person who uh, put up his work was documenting the Sikh community. So we, we invited the Sikh community from Old Town. They came, they attended the, the, the exhibition on the chalk. He, 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 uh, and then he also spoke on that event. So it was great to have that voice. Then we had another one where we went into the Hindu temple and we curated a show there. So sometimes we, we did it outside. Sometimes we went inside to them. So Old Town, that's why it is so... Uh, complex that it is not where you can just do boot polish you can't just clean up old town and do a superficial paint job renovation and restoration it doesn't it doesn't go that way you have to step into it like you're stepping into a family respecting the courts respecting the bylaws of theirs not states so it is the other way around that you have to now think about old town and, and that's where we are struggling right now by constantly writing, tweeting. And, and somehow the government thinks we are going against them. We are not. We are trying to become an ally between two parts. And those two parts need um, some kind of like a out of body experience to understand the, the old town complexities. So, so in fact, when you say just a minority, I can't because Old Town is, is, a, is a complex nexus where everyone is kind of intervened together. Yeah, and I think like what you mentioned about, you know, Old Town and New Town, sort of like sort of aligning the two and introducing them to each other because I feel like now there's such a huge disparity between essentially separating those 
um, in say minorities, for example, from like the major areas, major spaces. And so there's not that much of a voice, but what you mentioned about say going to the Hindu Hindu temple and having um, an event over there, stuff like that is essentially what really helps because there's only so much minorities themselves can do um, to sort of build into that. But um, so just to move on to the next questions. So you've conducted a, a lot of research in a lot of different areas, but just generally together, was there something specific that was uncovered in regards to women and their place in the development of Karachi? Um, for example, the Spoken History Project, I've definitely seen really, really great stuff on that. Women that are in Old Town independently working on their own. Um, anything specific that you uncovered that you discovered that you did not know of before? Well, it's my dream right now. And once if I have time and I have the headspace, I would love to design something which is to do with waste management. I feel like it is very easily tendered out and it's tendered out to, uh, to people who think they'll come and take away all the rubbish. I think if one designs and something puts out a, some kind of like outreach program with Old Town on waste management and working with women on that specifically, I feel it will be a game changer because you see, everything starts from home. Commercial activity, I'm not going to cater because that is something on ground floor level, but I'm interested in the apartment level. You know, what happens when you are in ground, in ground plus three buildings or ground plus four vertical structures? How do these shoots work? You know, how, how, and these are like in old town, there are a lot of like, you know, elderly women who once go upstairs, don't want to come down. How can design accommodate and, and with them, you work out some kind of strategy. So waste management is something that I would like to work on with, with women in old town. And I think that would be quite an interesting and exciting exercise. And especially to accommodate students from different organize, like, you know, universities or colleges to come and, and do like a experiment with even like two buildings and see how that comes out. So it'll be so different from what, how government tenders out to Chinese and, you know, to other waste management companies. I feel it can be done within, in home ground. It can be done within the own system, but it just needs, it needs an, it needs some kind of a thinking system. That's a very like unique way to look at it because I think something like waste management, everyone does definitely think about that, but it's more so in terms of how can we prevent, um, you know, pollution, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of different ways. But at the end of the day, it'll only actually change starts from the root. And unless we are looking at the actual systems, um, the change is likely not sustainable. So I think that's a very interesting project. Um, but with that, I, we're going to move into the last question of this podcast. So what advice would you have for young girls looking to get into the field of architecture or research? I'm so bad with giving advice, but one thing I would say is architecture is a subject which is in many categories, not just about design. It's not just about built environment. It's about social constructs. It's, it's about social systems, social design, social, social research, how people behave, how people eat, what is South Asia, what is regional architecture, what does regionality means in our society and community. 
And, and I always tell my students that think local. And you know how we say go local? It's the same thing with design and architecture. Think local, produce local, explore with local materials, think about what's available and can be manufactured within here. It's, you know, go for materiality, which is easily available. So you can have a better sustainable method for future. Getting all international products is great for the first year, but when deterioration and decay takes place, how will we ever be able to conserve those things? Because those are all alien materials. The good architecture in the city has remained the same is because they use local stone, local yellow stone, red stone. Look at Mohata, look at Hindu Jimkhana right now. These are all local materials. And why it survived right now is because it's easily replaceable. So, so, you know, we've been using this word recycle a lot, but how about replacement of local? And, and that's my, my advice is that step into this profession with thinking how we can go local. Right, that's great. Um, thank you so, so, so much for being here today because I think a lot of, not just me, but everyone that's gonna be watching this will have a completely different perspective on architecture after this conversation because that's a lot that I learned today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tia, for, for having me on this. And it was lovely talking to you and very engaging conversation and very tightly done. So I'm really proud of you. <laughs> thank you.